Welcome to NeuroFrontiers on ReachMD. I'm Dr. Jerome Liss, neurologist and movement disorder specialist here with Dr. Gerald Vitek, head of neurology and director of neuromodulation research program at the University of Minnesota. Dr. Vitek is also the director of the University of Minnesota Udall Center of Excellence for Parkinson's Research. He spent 14 years at Emory coming from Johns Hopkins and was the first group to do physiological mapping of the basal ganglia for localization in DBS that allows our patients to get the efficacy that DBS is so well known for. Deep brain stimulation is approved in essential tremor, Parkinson's disease, and epilepsy, and has a wide number of uses that are being explored around the world. Welcome, Dr. Vitek. How are you doing today? I'm doing fine, Dr. Liss. Thanks for having me. So let us start off by just explaining to some of those physicians and non-physicians, what is deep brain stimulation and how did it come about? Well, it's an interesting story. Basically, deep brain stimulation is a pacemaker-like technology that delivers electrical impulses to target of structures in the brain. And then those electrical pulses modify the abnormal brain activity that causes these problems, such as tremor or Parkinson's symptoms, motor science, et cetera. The way it came about was interesting because we used to do lesion surgery. So you'd put a probe in a certain structure in the brain and you'd heat it up and destroy the tissue. And what they did before they would destroy the tissue was they'd pass electrical current through that area. And if it changed the symptoms, then they felt they were in the right location. And then they would make the lesion and destroy the tissue. The problem with destroying the tissue is you can sometimes get side effects. You can't do it on both sides of the brain. So there are some issues associated with it that people didn't like. So a person named Aline Louise Benabide from Grenoble, France, decided, why can't we do this chronically? And he partnered with some device company to help develop this so that you could do stimulation chronically rather than making a lesion in the structure. That's how it started. Now, a lot of people are going to be wondering, okay, so yeah, you stimulate. That sounds like you're exciting. What actually is going on? Because we know this basal ganglia is very complex. There's on and off switches, and you can stimulate on switch. You can stimulate an off switch. What is actually going on, and how is this working? Well, you know, that's the million-dollar question. And if I had the answer to that question, maybe I'd get a Nobel Prize. But right now, we're still struggling with that. Actually, we do have some good ideas. You know, we started doing this work quite some time ago, back in the 90s, actually. So deep brain stimulation isn't necessarily new, but we are certainly getting better and better at it, and the technology is improving every day. But in terms of how it works, we used to think that if you made a lesion and you stimulated, because you got the same behavioral benefit, that they were doing the same thing. But what we realize now is that's not the case at all. More than likely what we're doing is when we stimulate in an area, we're actually activating the output from that structure. And whatever that structure, if that structure is projecting to a site and is activating it, or it could be projecting to a site suppressing it, but you're activating the output in general. So sometimes it may be more of a combination of activating certain elements, inhibiting other elements. But we do pretty much understand now that Rather than just increasing or decreasing activity in an area, we're changing the pattern of the activity. So instead of things, for example, firing too fast or firing too slow, they're really it's an abnormal pattern. And what we really believe at this point is that we are modulating these patterns into a pattern that shifts back more towards what we see with a normal state. So Dr. Vitek, from your vantage point, which Parkinson's patients make the best or worst candidates for DBS? Well, I wouldn't break it down based on symptoms so much. I can do that, but I don't want to give the impression from other people that if you have a gait problem, you're not a candidate because some people with Parkinson's have bad gaits and respond to medication. Some people have bad gaits and they don't respond to medication. Those would be two different types of patients. The one that does respond, I'd say, yes, they're a candidate. Ones that don't, you're probably not going to get benefit from gait and balance, but other things could improve. 
if, for example, they respond by 5% to levodopa, that's the best benefit they're going to get from deep brain stimulation. So it probably isn't worth the risk. However, if they have tremor as a major problem and that tremor doesn't respond, and that's the major issue, we know tremor will respond to deep brain stimulations. They wouldn't be a candidate. Typically, I think people see that in terms of the symptoms that respond very readily, tremor, the dyskinesias respond readily, fluctuations, wearing off, those things respond very well. Rigidity, radicinesia responds as well. Gait, if gait is related to being slow and stiff or having tremor or being dyskinetic, then your gait can improve as well. The things that I don't look for as much would be speech, postural instability. These things are less likely to change. Most time, they're not going to change for the better or for the worse. For those just tuning in, you're listening to NeuroFrontiers on ReachMD. I am Dr. Jerome Liss, neurologist and movement disorder specialist, and I am speaking with Dr. Gerald Vitek, also a movement disorder specialist and one of our far most experts on deep brain stimulation. I want to remind you that as we're talking about DBS and Parkinson's disease, we're talking about idiopathic Parkinson's disease and not atypical Parkinson's syndromes that would be a contraindication to deep brain stimulation or those Parkinson's patients that may have dementia. And Dr. Vitek, any other advice you have for candidates that should not have DBS? Well, I think there are a lot of people, when we first started doing DBS, that had some motor signs that didn't respond to medication and, and you know, people get desperate and they feel, I really want to try it. What you have to be careful about is if you don't respond very well to medication at all, and your main issue, for example, are cognitive issues, speech issues, things of that nature, then it isn't something you want to do. And the reason is you're not going to like be benefit at all from this. And when you put a probe in the brain, you always run a small risk that could be a problem. And you don't want to take that risk if the potential benefit's not there. It really comes down to weighing the benefits you can obtain from the surgery to the risk you're going to take to have the surgery. And really, the, the risks in general, I think, are pretty minimal. The risk of bleeding is the biggest concern, and that's about 2% per lead that's implanted. So 98% of people would not have that problem. The other thing is infection, and that's about a 3% risk. It's usually at the site where the pacemaker wire is put in in the chest, the pacemaker itself, the internal pulse generator. Sometimes you'll have it at the site where the lead uh, goes into the skull, and there's a little cap that's screwed into the skull. Sometimes at the wound site, you can get an infection there. But if you have an infection, most of the time what we do is we would take out the pulse generator where the infection is, give antibiotics, let the patient heal, and put that back in again. So I think the biggest concern for most people would be the risk of a bleed in the brain. And again, that's small, 1% to 2%. So lastly, Dr. Vitek, what advancements do you see with DBS coming in the next 10 years? What can we expect? Well, I'll tell you, it's even incredible what's happened in the last probably four or five years. You know, when you first had these devices come out back again in the 90s, actually they were used in the late 80s. The first paper was out back in the late 80s by Benavid. And we actually had one system for probably, oh, 20 some years or longer. But now we actually have three companies involved and they are all working hard to increase the technology. So now we have different kinds of leads. We have these pacemakers that can put out different patterns of stimulation. We can actually record the neural activity from the lead that's in the brain in some of these pacemaker wires. The leads themselves have multiple different current sources, so you can sculpt the current field of the lead that's in the brain. These are all things that are really just exciting, and this technology is driving, sometimes driving the things that we can do. But also, as we do things in the operating room, we also realize, I need different technology. So I think the technology drives the science, and the science is driving the technology. 
Well, I'd like to thank you for this educational tour that we've gone on deep brain stimulation from the history to the future. And we'd like to have you on sometime in the near future to talk about DBS and other advancements. Well, I'm happy to do it. It was fun. I always enjoy doing this kind of thing. All right. I am Dr. Jerome List. To access this and other episodes in our series, visit ReachMD.com neurofrontiers, where you can be part of the knowledge. Thanks for listening, everyone.